We're in John chapter 3. Thank you, Harvey. So I, I think we're actually going to finish John chapter 3 this morning. I don't know. I think we've been in John chapter, we've been in for a while. Anyway, uh, good passage. We'll look at the, uh, the back, the very back part of it. It's kind of a summary of, uh, of the chapter. You could even consider it a summary of the entire um, first three chapters of the book. And uh, it kind of ties up some loose ends for us. And, and in this passage, uh, John uses the narrative and he kind of gives some doctrinal explanations of the dialogue between um, Jesus and Nicodemus, but also um, what John declared at the middle part of John chapter 3. So picking this up in verse 31 of John chapter 3. And I went into a panic mode just for a moment because I'm looking at John chapter 4, verse 31, and thinking I didn't even, anyway, I'm back. John chapter 3, he who comes from above is above all. The one who is only from the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of this he testifies and no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has certified or in other translations that says has sealed that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. For he does not give the spirit sparingly, or other translations, without measure. The Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hand. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word and that you would give us understanding of this incredible relationship of the Trinity, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Lord, help us to hear that which the Spirit would say to each of us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. This passage touches a little bit on the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they're kind of their interplay with each other. But what's fascinating to me is a, a few things on this passage. One is, is that, that God structured, if you want to use that word, he structured the roles of the Trinity in such a way that we might best benefit from the ministry of God in our lives. And, and that God, the Father, sends the Son who does the work of redemption for us, dies on the cross for us, seals our eternal uh, destiny if we, in fact, believe in him. 
ascends into heaven and he and the Father send the Spirit. The Spirit who dwells in us. The Spirit who is the counselor. The Spirit who teaches us and, and leads us into all truth. The Spirit who speaks of those things that which he has heard from the Son and from the Father. But notice also the Father or the Son is also speaking of those things that the Father has shared with him. And the Father has entrusted to him all things. The more I think about the relationship within the Trinity, and I, 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 I have a hard time explaining the Trinity when I think about it, because, uh, and I, I'm a hardcore Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all three in one. They're all God. Well, I thought God was one. Yes, he is. Well, then how do we have three? Uh, I'm not sure. How's that? But I know the Bible declares that. The Bible clearly declares God the Father as God, God the Son as God, God the Holy Spirit as God. And the relationship between them... um, You know, as I'm thinking about it right now, right here is right here. Okay, this hot off the press for whatever it's worth, not in the notes. I don't know that I want to understand it. I think I would just rather marvel and be in awe of it. And and to recognize that there are just things that are just too great for me to comprehend. Uh, that doesn't really sound like a whole lot. <laughs> what are you laughing for? Uh, anyway, I, and, and I think there are things that are beyond our understanding. The, the prophet Isaiah, uh, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, and Isaiah, I think it's around 55, that his ways are higher than our ways. They are beyond our finding out. And that a little separation, a little distance between the realm of God and the realm of who? We are. I think it's important. I think it's healthy. I think it is as God designed it. If we really understood everything about God, would we truly desire to worship him? Probably not. We'd want to rival him. But the distinction, and it's really brought out here, the distinction between the things of above and the things of earth. He who comes from above is above all, verse 31. The one who is only from the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. You see, the thing is that when when we received Christ as Lord and Savior, we were given a new nature. All things, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we start to learn and think and operate in, in God, uh, do I dare say this? Feel things from above, not things from the earth. We have a new paradigm. A new paradigm that we're, we are aware of, yet at the same time we are continually learning of. I mean, who here has God figured out? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) 
Well, maybe you should. We should talk about it later if you wanted. Who here has God figured out? But he has shared with us those things. We were talking on Wednesday night. We have the mind of Christ. And no wonder there is this strange disparity between us and those who do not know the Lord. Because they're on a different rhythm. They're on a different wavelength. They're on a different paradigm. And those things that you listen to, those things that you watch, those things that you read, will either feed you from the things of above or they will continue to reinforce an earthly perspective. And I think that's true for Christians. While we have an heavenly understanding, we don't always tap into it. Because we are prone to also turn to the thinking of the flesh, the thinking of the earth. And often I believe it is, that's our automatic response. You say something bad about me, maybe I'll just say something bad about you. You do something bad to me, maybe I'll do something bad to you. And it's built in. It's, It's the warring between the flesh and the spirit that Paul was keenly aware of and wrote about in Romans chapter 7. But what we have here is this distinction between those who accept the heavenly truths and those who reject them. And those who gravitate toward the things of the earth. Things you can touch, things that you can see, things that you can understand, things that you can use the scientific method of inquiry to replicate. We've been given a heavenly calling. We've been called to live supernatural lives in a very natural setting, I believe. Now, when I say supernatural, some of you guys start getting kind of, oh, no, here he goes again. But the thing is, I believe often the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is done supernaturally, but it looks very natural. It looks very natural. In other words, there isn't weirdness to it. Now, there can be differentness. I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to go on a tangent. I'm trying to reel myself in here this morning, okay? There can be differentness. Has God ever given you a word of wisdom? Has God ever given you a word of knowledge? Those are some of the spiritual gifts that are written about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Has God informed you, told you certain things that you would know otherwise have no idea or I have any understanding about? Those are just two examples whereby God 
works supernaturally in a very natural way. Not weird, but different. And to me, there's a huge distinction between the two. I'm going to get off this and get back into the text. We need to interpret this in light of what we have already read. There is a huge distinction here in this passage between God the Father and God the Son, and really even God the Spirit. And so this passage could be used to argue, see, that Jesus isn't God, which I've had people tell me this. My response to that is is that we have to read the entirety of the book of John in light of what John 1, verse 1, has already clearly told us. John, the apostle who wrote this, did not change his mind theologically here in chapter 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right? That stands. The Word became flesh, verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten, or the one and only unique one. None of that changes. What you have here is an expansion of the attributes of God, and thereby it looks like a paradox. Because there's no asterisk. You know what an asterisk is, right? Right? Where it says, go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. All right? John, in writing this, the Holy Spirit, in inspiring this, assumes that we already have got that figured out and got it nailed and got it understood. And now he's expanding on the roles of who God is and how God relates to us and how the Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hand, into his hand. So we have here basically a summary. The contrast between heaven and earth, the, the, the two totally different realities. And how that one says, he who comes from above. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. He who comes from above, the one who is the only. He refers to him as the only in the New American Standard. Uh, the one who is above all. And then it says the one who is only from the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. They understand earthly things. And I thought about this because this is really a reference to that question that Jesus asked Nicodemus. If you don't understand earthly things, and I'm telling you earthly things, and you don't understand them, how are you going to understand heavenly things? This is in the context of of Jesus telling telling, Nicodemus Nicodemus, that you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus didn't get it. He later got it. And and he had all, does it mean you go back into your mother's womb? Yeah, I think he was being, personally, I think he was being sarcastic. But Jesus talked about being born from where? Above. Being born from above. 
because he who comes from above is above all. Now, I read that and I couple that with the discussion between John and Nicodemus and and that causes me to, to pause. Because do we truly live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ in the recognition that he is above all? Of course we do, right? Of course we do. But how does that play out in your life? And do we have lapses in our memory of that? I think we all do. But how does that play out? How do we put the one who is above all to become the first and foremost in our thinking in our hearts, in our minds, in our day-to-day being, having a supernatural experience with him, but in a very natural way. Because in him we live and we move and we have our being, Paul said to those on Mars Hill. In other words, how do we incorporate the lordship of Jesus Christ and, and this understanding is that we are now citizens from above while we're living on this earth? While we are dealing with those people day in and day out who understand according to the earth. I'm looking at the ceiling because I don't want to make eye contact. Who are looking at the ceiling, or sorry, who, 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 uh, coffee. Okay. How is it that we walk in the Spirit, recognizing He who is above all, while at the same time dealing with these earthly people who drive us absolutely nuts and crazy day in and day out? Is it just me? It's just me. Okay. And to recognize his lordship, even in the context of dealing with people that drive us crazy. Or the people that we don't want to listen to. Or deal with. Maybe it's not people. Maybe it's just situations. The people, places, and things that just tend to to grate on us and irritate us. Especially because they are walking and living according to a different paradigm than the Christian. And the reality is they think a lot of us are strange. They think a lot of us are otherworldly. And yes, we are. Yes, we are. But the reality is, when I, when I think about the incarnation, the incarnation, God comes in the flesh, right? John 1.14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. When I think about the incarnation, 
Jesus was here. He ascends into heaven, but he comes with his Holy Spirit and he indwells us and we become his hands and we become his feet and we become his voice. Paul framed it differently, but he understood the concept when he said to the Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, that's really easy for me to talk about. And when I'm around a bunch of non-Christians, I can always play the pastor card, right? You know what I mean, right? I had, I had somebody this years ago. We were moving here, actually, and he wants to tell me this filthy joke. And I said, uh, and this was strange to me. I said, he goes, you want to hear this joke? And I'm like, no. And he starts telling me. I said, well, I'm a pastor. Maybe he had never heard the word pastor before. I, I, it's possible. And he continues to tell me, and I finally said, look, dude, you know, I don't want to hear it. Shut up. No, I didn't use an adjective, by the way. But anyway, I considered it. But some of you can't play that, you know? And so it's because some people, you play the pastor card, and they're like, okay, I won't, I won't be quite such an idiot around you. You know what I'm talking about? You follow me? All right? And if you play the Christian card, then they're going to use it as a hammer over your head. It's what they're going to do, right? I, I've been there, all right? How do you maintain a faithful presence? How do you maintain just this quiet, faithful presence and stand for truth and to stand for righteousness and to recognize that you walk in ways that are totally different to theirs? Because the thing is, he does not give the Spirit Sparingly. He's referring actually to Jesus, which I find fascinating that, that he even says this because, because when I talk about the Trinity, when I talk about God, I'm referring to all three. When I talk about Jesus, I'm also referring to the Father. When I talk about the Father, I'm also referring to the Spirit. When I talk about the Spirit, I'm also referring to Jesus and the Father. That's just how my mind works. Because I believe that's a biblical way to understand the construction of the Godhead in the Bible. All right? So, how do we tap into those things of the Spirit? If he gives those to us or unsparingly, he gives the Spirit sparingly, or he gives the Spirit without measure, without reservation. It's a weird word to translate in the Greek, and so it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. Because he said, he's saying this about Jesus, but of course Jesus would have the Spirit because he's a part of the Trinity. But yet, let me remind you, in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water, what happens? The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And that was how John the Baptist knew that this was, in fact, the Messiah. 
is either in Luke 4 or in Luke 5 where Jesus goes into the synagogue and he, he asks for the scroll and he reads and he, he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he begins by saying, the spirit of God is upon me. And I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, because I'll misquote it and I don't have it in front of me. But he, he reads this messianic prophecy talking about the spirit of God is upon him. And then he closes the book and he says, this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your eyes. And you know how well they received it? They wanted to throw him over the cliff because they thought he was declaring him. Well, they understood, excuse me, they understood that he was declaring himself as divine. They understood that part. So somehow in, in this this ministry of Jesus in because remember Jesus took, takes on an additional nature he was not God pretending to be man that's important to understand he took on the additional nature he took on humanity he is 100% God he is 100% man today how does that work I'd rather just stand back and be in awe rather than try to understand it or explain it to someone else. The Bible declares it. And in his humanity, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In his humanity, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, getting back to that scenario where, what do I do when I deal with these people? Because I haven't forgot about that yet, all right? The book of James tells us that if anyone lacks Wisdom. Let him ask of God. Who gives liberally and does not withhold? So how do you deal with those situations? You need godly wisdom. And what I have found out about godly wisdom, because the Spirit is given without measure. What I've found out about godly wisdom is that often it is that we don't have it until we need it. And maybe that, at least that's how it is with me, all right? So most of the time I run around just stupid, right? But, but, but when the Spirit of God puts me in a place where I need it, if I have, if I have not, why? Because I... That's not. Or I ask amiss that I might consume it upon my own lust. Oh, God, give me wisdom in this situation to know how to respond. Really, that's the best advice I think I can give you all. When you're in those situations, I'm not going to try to give you any little key words or key phrase or to sound really cool or pithy or whatever the case may be. Call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to fill you with his spirit and to give you the wisdom that you need to navigate through these people. We'll call them people. How's that, right? Because there's a lot of difficult people out there, is there not? I want to say it's not their fault, but I, that's not true. Because we're all responsible. But they don't know Jesus. Or 
they don't know Jesus in the way that they should know Jesus. And because Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, I think it's verse 17, to walk in the Spirit and you will not do what? Fulfill the lust of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. Which have a whole lot more to do than just our bodies, by the way. They really have a lot to do with our egos. Walk in the Spirit, you will not... um, My paraphrase, okay? Your mileage may vary. Walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of your own ego. That's a hard thing to do. But if any man asks for wisdom, or any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. So we, we, we have this where it says here in verse 33. It says, the one who has accepted his testimony has certified that God is true. The word is also the word sealed, has sealed that God is true. So if you have accepted the testimony of God, you have certified or you have sealed that God is true. Doesn't that sound kind of weird? Does God need us to certify anything about him at all? Why did John write this then? It's it's puzzling to me. But are we... Because what it's saying here, this word testimony, uh, the one who has accepted his testimony... Uh, has certified that God is true. This testimony is from the root word that we get the word martyr. This idea of being a witness, of being a martyr. But as I thought about this, is this a work of the Spirit? This idea of, of sealing within us, that's what it's talking about. This idea of sealing within us the testimony that God is true. And by the way, I would submit to you that part of the reason why some people who are not Christians do not like you because they recognize that your testimony is true and that you have sealed the fact that God is true and they don't like it and they don't want to hear it and they just wish that you would shut up and go away. That's one blunt way to say it. I could be it, and I won't be blunter anyway. But is this the work of the Spirit? In Ephesians chapter 1, see, I got interested in this word sealed. How is it that we certify or seal anything, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Think about Jesus. The, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You, I think we were sealed in, in this. Now, I think we were sealed in this place that, that once we believed, we're saved. I don't think we get unsealed, by the way. Some people feel like you can, but I, it just doesn't ring true with me. 
But I think we are sealed as far as our status as people of God. And I think our decision to believe and to trust in Jesus seals the fact that all that the Bible teaches about him is in fact true. But it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that you necessarily authorize, if you will, on your own. We simply believe. We simply take God at his word, and he does the rest. Aren't you glad that that is the case? Could, could you imagine you trying to save yourself? Some of you I know pretty well. I can't even imagine you trying to save yourselves. And I know some of you who know me really well are thinking, well, I can feel the same way about you. Trying to save yourself, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Because the Father loves the Son. When we get into those narratives about the cross, remember this verse. To me, that's hard, though. Because it's, it's not my expectation of what love is. Love means you give me a bigger house, I get a raise, I get more time off, and maybe a new 4 by 4 crew cab, lift kits. Never mind. Um, thinking about a truck all, all of a sudden. Okay. But the father loves the son. What in the world was going on in the heart of the Father when Jesus was on the cross? What was going on in the dynamic between the Trinity when Jesus was on the cross dying for our sins? Yet the Father loves him and has entrusted all things into his hand. Man, I cannot think of anyone I would rather have entrusted into someone's hands but the hands of Jesus Christ. I wish he'd run for president. In a very roundabout way, one day he will. Well, he won't be elected. He will come back. He will rule. He will reign. And he'll be in charge. And he will set things in the order that they are supposed to be, but at the same time make all things new. I'm looking forward to his rule and his reign. But sometimes I think that that vision afar off can be a way that we basically rip ourselves off from the ruling and reigning of Christ in our individual hearts today. Because he is ruling and reigning. I mean, yet he even asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And, you know, to me, I just, I don't, to me, it just seemed like God got such a bad deal when he saved most of us. How's that? Maybe not all of us. I'm looking at some of your faces right now going, yep, definitely a bad deal. But anyway, 
But you know what that really speaks of? It speaks of his incredible love. It speaks of his incredible love for you and I that he would demonstrate his love toward us while we were yet sinners that Christ dies for us. That God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And part of God's loving us is that the Father loves the Son and entrusts all things into his hands. Because I, I don't know about you, and I hope this is the case with you. I'm really comfortable. This sounds stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've already started. I'm really comfortable with Jesus. There's a trust I have in him that I can't really explain. I've, I've only been a Christian for, Fifty-seven years? Okay, so I'm still getting, I'm still new at this, all right, really. I think we all are. We're really still new at this. But there is a certain faithfulness about him that, that, quite frankly, Peter got within a few years. He understood this a whole lot earlier than I did, I think. when the crowds start thinning out and people are no longer wanting to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you two going to go? And Peter says to him and says, where else are we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are we to go? Why? Because he who comes from above is above all. He who comes from above is above all, and we can bank on that. And therefore, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not believe, you have in some of your translations, New American Standard 2020 says, the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. The wrath of God remains on him because he did not obey. Part of the obedience of Christ is believing in him. Have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're, you feel like your back's against the wall and, and, and uh, you want to take action and you start praying about it and God tells you not to do it? You ever been there? And it's like God just... Where God just says... Wait and trust in me. You know, I hate it when he does that. It's hard. Because it's like, well, I just want to fix this. And God says, let me do it for you, but just trust in me. And this idea of not only resting in his work of securing my salvation, but resting in his work that he's going to fix the next issue. 
that comes your way. Now, now sometimes he's going to say to you, get out there and do it. You ever had him say that to you? I think, yes, I think he does. And what that does, that makes me want to walk even more carefully because I don't want to get ahead of God, but I want to remain in the, in the, in, in the, 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 uh, uh, the center of God's will. And sometimes it means that God is leading me to do something. Sometimes it means that God is leading me to be quiet, sit still, and to trust and to wait upon him. And going into any situation, I don't always know what the response should be. But if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and does not withhold. See, that's the dynamic of the relationship. And conversely, the, the dynamic of no relationship is that you have people who do not obey the Son. They do not hear him. They do not seek his counsel. They do not seek his uh, guidance. Because they have not believed in him in the first place. And then it says that the wrath of God then remains. We, we looked at that earlier at this particular chapter. It could also be translated the word abide. I think some of your translation has the word abide. Which this idea of, 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 of something dwelling within you. God's wrath is, is dwelling within those who are only from the earth and is of the earth and speaks of the earth. Because God has entrusted all things into the hands of the Son, all I simply need to do is believe in him. I don't even understand when my body dies. I don't even understand how my soul is even to get out of here and get into a heavenly realm or a spiritual realm. That makes no sense to me. But the Bible declares it, does it not? And so I can trust in that. I've chosen to place all who I am and say this is the truth because of the seal of the Holy Spirit that has come upon my life when I received him as Lord and Savior. It's the same thing with you guys. Those of you who have received Christ, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and in that sealing of the Holy Spirit, you have certified that God is true. You live by a different paradigm. You're called to walk in a different way. And how important it is for us to have the dependency upon the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to give us guidance by which we can navigate each and every aspect of our day. And will we do it perfectly? I haven't yet. I haven't yet, but thank God for his grace that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the thing is, is he does it again and again and again and again 
and again because of his incredible great grace and love for each of us. Amen.